Hello. So as Amanda said before, my name's Kat and um, it's my privilege to read us or take us through the Bible reading today, which is Hebrews 13, 1 to 8. Um, if you picked up a blue Bible on your way in, that's on page 1214, but it will also should be on the screen behind me. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. And forever. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, if you were following the Bible reading, I'd like you to keep your Bibles open at Hebrews 13 and those first eight verses. Um, as Mandy has already been saying, uh, today um, is the second in our series on the theme of resolved aspects of how we uh, can determine to live in the light of Christ in 2023. And last week, Luke took us through the theme of drawing uh, near to God. And this week I've chosen um, a theme um, from Hebrews 13, which I'll explain in a moment, um, called Living to Please God. And just as Luke chose a passage from Hebrews, of course, that was a series we were doing before Christmas and he decided to choose a passage that we hadn't really looked at, Hebrews 10, to continue it through. So that's why I've chosen Hebrews 13, so that we sort of, in a sense, finish off um, the whole of Hebrews, um, but now under this theme of living to please God. And I think when you read through, we haven't read through the whole of Hebrews 13, but um, if you read through the whole of Hebrews 13, I think this living to please God really is a theme that undergirds the whole chapter. The writer actually mentions it twice. He mentions about pleasing God in verse 16 and then in the final doxology in verse 21, which we all come to right at the end, um, asking God to work in us that which is pleasing uh, to him. Unfortunately, we haven't got time to cover this whole chapter this morning. You might think that's fortunate, but, um, but unfortunately we just haven't got the time to go through uh, the whole lot. So I've chosen just the first eight verses because I think the themes um, there are very relevant still to our society today and particularly the context of our culture. Um, broadly speaking, what we have here is four exhortations concerning what it means to live in a way that pleases God. And the first is the call to make love a priority. So verses 1 to 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels 
without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are suffering. You see, I don't think it's an accident um, that the writer begins this last chapter of pastoral exhortations um, with a call to love. Last week, Damien read out to us 1 Corinthians 13, which ends with the words, These three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And of course, 1 John 4 tells us that the very character of God is its very nature is one of love. We're told that God is love. So it should be no surprise that the author of Hebrews also begins here at the end of chapter with his pastoral exhortations um, on what is for the believer, aiming to please God, one of the most important aspects of Christian living the call to love. We're told, first of all, in verse 1, that we're to love one another as brothers and sisters. That is, we are to love each other as if we were family. And we are all brothers and sisters in Christ's family. Such love is to be shown especially to those who are presently in the context of Hebrews in prison or being mistreated. In other words, especially those who are being persecuted or are suffering because that's what the people who are in prison here are almost certainly Christians in the congregation who are being persecuted uh, and have been put in prison as a result. We already know from the rest of Hebrews that this was the context of um, many of the author's readers. As a result, they were beginning to buckle, if you like, under the pressure uh, that was upon them, even to the point of being ready to give up on Christ and go back to the old way of Judaism. But so strong is our sense of attachment to one another as family that we are to treat the suffering of fellow believers um, as if it was happening to us, ourselves. Well, what does it then mean to love each other as if we're family? Of course, in specific terms, we could it could mean many things depending on the circumstances, practical help of one kind or another, spending time uh, listening, encouraging each other to live for God, praying together, lots of things depending on the circumstances. But the one thing that the ability to love depends upon for sure is meeting. You can't love if you don't meet. You can't love if you don't meet. And that is why I'm sure last week from Hebrews 10, passage Luke was looking at, we saw the encouragement to not give up meeting together. And I think the temptation to give up meeting together is just as strong today as it was then probably for different reasons. Life is busy. There are lots of things on, lots of things that draw our uh, attention. It's easy for meeting together in larger or smaller groups to become haphazard, 
a matter of convenience when it suits us. Home groups, I think, or community groups, our community groups, are a key factor here. For it's only that smaller and more intimate context that we learn the needs of one another, really. Encourage the downhearted. Walk beside one another in our struggles and have the opportunity to pray. Real love always comes at a cost. Either in time, money or other ways, it always involves sacrifice. Just, of course, as Jesus sacrificed even his life for us. So if at all possible, friends, I would urge you to join a community group this year and to give it some serious thought. And if family circumstances make that unworkable, which I'm sure it, it, it does for some of you, think about how you may meet in other ways. Having people around for meals, meeting one-on-one for coffee or a few for coffee or whatever. I think we need to give some serious reflection to how committed we really are to love one another as brothers and sisters. The reach of our love, however, does not stop there. The writer also urges us to extend our love um, beyond our fellow believers and not to forget the stranger, or I've added the word neighbour there as well, because I think in our context... Um, its appropriate application to our context today. In the times of the readers of the Hebrews, there were many itinerant travellers, both believers and unbelievers, who needed support um, along the way. With these words, the writer is likely recalling the episode in Genesis 18, where Abraham welcomed three strangers who turned out to be angels in the end sent by God to assure him that Sarah would have a child and also to tell him about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our context may not be the same, but the effect on strangers and neighbours of unexpected love can have a powerful purpose in God's hands. Many years ago when I was pastoring a church plant in Sydney, a woman who was a member of the congregation um, became pregnant and had a lot of complications, severe ones, which meant she had to spend the last three months on her back in hospital. Her husband was not a Christian. He didn't come to the congregation. But a number of people got together and provided regular evening meals during this time for him. It was costly. And it took a lot of effort. But unbeknown to us during this time, the husband was completely blown away by this service to him and subsequently started coming to church and eventually became a Christian himself. I don't think we should ever underestimate how God can use even the simplest act of love and care for a stranger or a neighbour. So living to please God begins then with a, con- a continuing priority to love. And because it's never easy for us to look past our own needs and to care for the needs of others, 
it's something we need to regularly resolve to think about and do. The second exhortation the writer chooses has to do with the most basic relationship on which human society is built, that of marriage. If we are to make love our priority as a community, we must be committed to the call to honour marriage. Verse 3, marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, I think in our culture, a lot of people would agree that love is a good thing. Even if they're not very good at putting it into practice, they would agree that it's a good thing. But when it comes to marriage and sexual activity in 2023, culture and pleasing God could not be further apart than that. Not only have we redefined marriage these days to include same-sex relationships, but adultery and sexual liaisons outside of marriage are really just commonplace, often being the cause too of the breakdown of marriage itself. Sexual activity has virtually been reduced to some sort of plaything, an appetite to be funded like any other. And who cares if that is with a married person or not? What matters is my own experience, my own fulfilment, what I want more than anything else. It's simply ludicrous to many in our culture today to save sex for marriage. You're only missing out on so much. And the temptation to think and act in such a way permeates virtually every aspect of media today, being film, TV, music, novels, doesn't matter what it is. But marriage was created by God to be lifelong. As such, there will always be ups and downs uh, within such a relationship, particularly when the participants are sinful individuals like you and me. The grass can always look greener on the other side, but it rarely is. In our world today, with the pressures to do otherwise, honouring marriage is going to take guts and determination. And if you're a parent here today or within our congregation of young or adolescent, young adult children, I truly feel for you. you will need to have open conversations with your children about sex and marriage and talk with them about what it means to please God and why. The absolute myth of our culture is that sex equates with love and is some sort of need for us to find fulfilment as human beings. The writer tells us, however, that God will judge uh, the sexually immoral. Sorry, I just um, lost something then. Now, I don't think that judgment, by the way, is confined only to God's ultimate judgment when Jesus returns. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, part of God's judgment on wayward sexual activity occurs in the here and now. How? Well, God, you see, gives us over 
to our own desires and suffering the consequences as a result. Contrary to what we see on film, adultery and sexual immorality does not lead to bliss but must but mostly a greater sense of emptiness as we discover how easily another person can set us aside and the fact that sex is nothing like the path to fulfilment. Relationships are what matters in life and God created marriage as the basic building block of human society. Sex within marriage, of course, provides for secure procreation of humanity and forms a powerful supportive bond between a man and a woman. seems to me that God's people more than ever today need to stand apart from our culture in this regard and show a different way. The third exhortation to please God, noted here, is also an area we need to stand apart from our culture. In our wealthy and materialistic society, there's a great need for the call to cultivate contentment. Verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my help, or I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now we've just passed the Christmas period where I was looking up on the internet as a nation, we've spent something like $21 billion on presents, partying and travel. $21 billion. And yet we're also told that this year 15% more families have needed help over this Christmas period. The desire for more and more, which is what the love of money really is, is communicated in the media as the elixir of life, bringing true satisfaction. But many of the richest people in the world have found that money and things can never fulfil the human heart. Because it's not that money is a problem in itself. The Bible nowhere sees either wealth or poverty as inherently good or bad. It is, as the writer says here, the love of money that is the problem and the temptation we face all the time in our part of the world as one of the richest countries in the world. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, Verses 12 and 13. I know what it is to be need, to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But how does one learn this secret of being content with what we have, rich or poor? Well, what should interest us here, I think, in this passage is the reason the, writers give, the writer gives in verses 5 and 6. It all depends on taking the focus away from ourselves and on our faithful God instead. We can learn to be content by remembering that God will never forsake you. The quotation in verse 5 comes from Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 where God promises the people not to be afraid when they go into the promised land, led by Joshua, 
because God will be with them and never forsake them. You see, a love of money often arises from a sense of insecurity. Having money will safeguard us from misfortune and secure the future. But many discover how fragile and foolish that is. Much like the parable of the rich fuel, rich fool, uh, which Jesus told about a man who kept on getting lots of grain and building bigger and bigger and barns from himself, but God would require his life that night. And who would get his wealth then? So one antidote then from succumbing to the constant temptation to have more is to focus on the one who can truly secure your life. The one who is promised in Christ to never leave us or forsake us. I think actually this is implicit in those words from the Apostle Paul when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Because that is where his focus is. So one antidote to the love of money is to focus on all we have in Christ and the true security we have for all eternity. The writer puts it another way. He quotes Psalm 118 in verse 6, which I've summarised like this. If God is our helper, who can harm us? I think that is what lies behind much of the New Testament teaching on being generous. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, that through his poverty we might become rich. Practically speaking, I always think it's a good time, thing at this time of year or whatever time of year you choose to do it, to prepare some sort of budget. A budget that always includes a column for giving as well as acquiring and determining what percentage you would like to give in comparison to the percentage you spend on acquiring. When Paul said he had learned to be content, he was making clear that being content is hard work. It takes effort, determination, even more so in our wealth and materialistic culture in which we live. But we, friends, above all, have a reason to work at being content. We belong to a God who is so clearly demonstrated in Christ that our security for all eternity is certain. Reminding one another of this truth will help us to learn to be content and generous with what we have. Oh, the last one, the fourth and final expectation in these verses I've summarised like this. The call to remain faithful. In verses 7 and 8 we read, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, given the language used here, the tense 
spoke in the past tense, the leaders who spoke to you the word of God and the reference to the outcome of their life, it's most likely that the leaders being referred to here are those uh, through whom the church began and have now probably died. This is somewhat supported by the fact that if you go down to verse 17, the writer actually addresses um, verses on the current leaders of the church. So the church uh, community is being encouraged, as I've got it there, to imitate the life of leaders past. And in the context uh, where the author of uh, Hebrews is writing to believers who were in danger of giving up in Christ because of the hardships they're experiencing, this is really a call then to remain faithful to Christ as those leaders in the past had been we don't know whether they were martyred or how they died or that sort of thing. Um, but we can see their way of life and how they were faithful to the end. In one sense, it's interesting, I think this is a shorthand reference in a way to um, the great chapter with which we began the whole series on Hebrews, chapter 11, the great cloud of witnesses that trusted God through the ages, even without seeing the revelation of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The readers of Hebrews, of course, have seen this revelation as we have, friends, and how God has accomplished something so much better than the old covenant through the death and resurrection of Christ. This call is then backed up with a reference to the faithfulness and sufficiency of Christ himself to meet all the needs of believers until he returns to take his own. The reference being uh, to Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. In the context of Hebrews, I think, should be taken to mean this, that Jesus is sufficient yesterday, today and forever. There's lots of ways you could take those words um, that are there in the text in verse 8. But I think in the, in the, you have to remember that this is spoken at the end of Hebrews. And I think yesterday, therefore, here refers to the finished work of Christ as a once and for all sacrifice on our behalf that the writer of the Hebrews has taken a long while to explain um, on the way. I think today captures the present work of Christ in heaven, resurrected, interceding for us before the Father on the throne. And forever then is referring to the completion of Christ's work when he returns and when we go to be with him forever. And so for us, I think it's as true now in our lifetime as it was then for the readers of Hebrews. Jesus' presence, grace and power are permanently at our disposal in 2023 as we aim to live a life pleasing to God. He is sufficient always to meet our needs and to strengthen us to live a life pleasing to God. So with that in mind, friends, as we begin 2023, let us resolve 
to respond to these exhortations in this final chapter of Hebrews. To make love a priority, to honour marriage and keep sex within its bounds, to cultivate contentment in whatever circumstances we find ourselves and above all else, when, when the going gets tough, to remain faithful to the word of the gospel through which we came to know Christ because Jesus alone is sufficient for us yesterday, today and forever. Hebrews ends with a great doxology in verses 20 and 21 which I said earlier fits our theme of living to please God beautifully. I thought I might end by asking you um, to say it together with me as part of asking God in the strength of this new year to resolve to live a life pleasing to him. Let's say this together, shall we? Now may the grace, God of peace, sorry, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.